Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Good morning, church. You ready for another sermon in James? You say that uh, sort of haphazardly. Yes. (laughs) Well, by that, what I mean is, like, we also know, like, as we listen to the book of James, we listen to to James's lessons, that he's very harsh. I mean, that's just part of it. And I don't know about you, but that's what I love about James. His unique voice in all of Scripture is one uh, where he doesn't pull punches. Right, he just he goes after it. He tells it like it is, usually uh, in a very uh, extreme way. Like I, I, I could not get away with if coming in here and saying, "You adulterers, you demons," you know, I couldn't. That'd be my last Sunday here, right? But James, you know, he has that reputation. Uh, Jesus is his brother, so I mean, right? Job security, right? For sure. Um, <clears throat> so I heard this cute joke this week that I thought I'd share. I'm not a joke um, in a sermon um, kind of guy. I've only ever told one joke ever, but I thought this was cute. <clears throat> so there's this pastor, and he, he's just finished preaching through the book of James. They've just got through James, and, and one, of, one of the men in his church comes up to him, <clears throat> and he looks horrible. Like, his, you know, his, his hair is messed up. He's hunched over. Uh, he just looks like he's been in a battle. He's been utterly destroyed. He, he has tears in his eyes. And he comes up to the pastor, and the pastor is like, dude, like, what's wrong? What, what's wrong with you right now? And he says, you know, I'm just so thankful. Pastor, I'm just so thankful. And so the, past, the, the pastor, he said, oh, why are you thankful? And he's like, I'm so thankful for the book of James. And the pastor is very pleased by this. He's like, yes, tell me more. Tell me, sir, why are you so thankful for the book of James? To which the man replies, I am thankful that James only has five chapters. <laughs> so, uh, and maybe you feel that way this morning. And I, I hope, like I said, I think it's a great thing. It, it's, it's so great to be challenged, right? To be told a hard truth and let the Holy Spirit work in us. You know, if we hear something that makes us uncomfortable, praise God. Praise God, right? And so last week we looked at this wonderful possibility of resisting the devil to the point that the devil flees. No more devil. And a life that draws nearer to God, gets closer to God. Less devil, more God. How wonderful does that sound? And so that is the solution that James presented as we looked at last week, to the war of passions. That's the answer to the war of passions we have within us. Stop following your old sinful desires. Go towards those new desires, and, and you will have you know, the peace of God. You, you will have uh, humility and be exalted. In fact, we ended last week with verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. And like me, I think that you were excited about that, and you left here. You're like, yes, I'm going to be humble. And you got home, and you sat in your chair 
waiting, ready to be humble. Right? It's like you're just waiting for this humble thing to do, the next humble opportunity you have. But you also probably get to a point where it's like, well, what is that? Like, what does that look like as far as, as, as what I'm doing? Which is why I love where James goes here, because he then, and I think it's very much tied uh, um, to his argument here, is like, here is what humility looks like. And so humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. That's great. But now James is like, well, let's talk about what that looks like because at this point we know that the people he's preaching to aren't really understanding what he's saying. So he's going to give them some examples today. Our passage today will be James chapter 4, verse 11 through James chapter 5, verse 6. This is our second to last sermon in James. The title this morning is Humility Destroys the Evil of Pride. Let me pray for us before we we dive in. Lord, sometimes I just want to to just uh, come before you in prayer and just say, you are awesome. You are worthy to be praised. You are great. What what a joy, what a privilege it is to uh, come to your word, to hear you speak to us. What a joy and privilege that we have this new family in you, this family here that we're going to have forever. Lord, uh, speak to us this morning as we want to live humble lives, Lord, so that we don't exalt ourselves, but that you would would exalt us, Lord. How amazing that is, Lord. And so may that be our aim this morning, Lord, to the glory of Jesus, Lord. Amen. All right, so we're going to start by reading chapter 4, verses uh, 11 and 12. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? And so not surprising if you've been here uh, for this series in James is that once again, James is talking about the evil of words. This is huge, these words that we use. And specifically, he's talking here about evilly intended words. Evilly intended words. Now, um, in the Greek here, what this means is, it's sort of a weird concept, but it's against somebody. Words that are against to hurt somebody. Right, as we talked about a few weeks ago, weaponized words. These, these are words. It doesn't say not to lie about one another, which would be slander. He says any words that are used against somebody is evil, you know, especially in the church, which, which is the context here. And so we are not to lie. Don't get me wrong. But I don't think that's his point here because he doesn't say don't lie. He's saying don't weaponize words. Don't use words that are going to hurt people. Whether or not it's true is irrelevant to this point. Why are you saying what you're saying? How often have you heard somebody say something horrible about somebody else and just say, well, it's the truth. Okay, but, you know, did it need to be said? Like there was a reason that you said it. And that's what James is talking about here. Check, you know, check your, 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 your heart behind what you say. You can use truth in an evil manner. Again, as we already looked at. 
But why is this a pride issue? Why is this a pride issue? Why is it that evilly intended words, you know, against your brother or sister that would judge your brother or sister, why is this a pride issue? And so we find this, again, in verses 11 and 12. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? So the issue at hand is self-exaltation. It is self-exaltation. He's saying you have exalted yourself above the law. I I know it's kind of what you read that. It's kind of like technically, what does that mean? This is what it means. You have put yourself above the law when you do this. And then it says you put yourself above God. Right? So the opposite of humility. You see why this is a prideful thing. This person is playing God. You know, who are you? It says at the end of verse 12, who are you? Like, who do you think you are? To play judge? Yeah, there's only, there's only one judge. Who are you to ruin somebody's life? That shouldn't be. And think about it like this. If God knows what is right and wrong, and he does, and he knows everything about everyone ever, which, which he also does, and he could still extend grace to people. You know, that's, that's the gospel, grace extended to enemies. How can you, any one of us, including me, who doesn't have all the knowledge, very finite knowledge, judge someone, a brother or sister, in a way using words that would bring them harm, that would ruin their day, that would ruin their life? It's not okay. Unfortunately, this is an issue that hasn't gone away. And so, unfortunately for James, you know, I don't know if he knows this, but it's still an issue today in the church, right, across the world, where brothers and sisters uh, bring defamation against each other. It doesn't mean that what they say is not true, but they are using it in a way that is ungodly, that is evil and prideful. And so what is the solution to this? How do we destroy that evil pride in our life? We do it through humility. We do it through humility. And so the first, the first part of that is, as it says in the text, be a doer, not a judge. Again, verse 11, if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. And so you have your solution there. Be a doer, you know? And, and if that sounds familiar, that's what James has said since the very beginning. What, be a doer of the word, not just a hearer. Like, keep busy doing good stuff. Do the right stuff. You don't even have to worry about, about this. So what do we do as a doer? I would say this. You're in a mood to judge somebody? Judge yourself. That is the heart of this passage. Like, really? You don't have enough going on that you're going to go bug somebody else? No. And so if this sounds familiar, it, it's what James's brother um, Jesus said in Matthew 7, 5, You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Man, we have so much to do, guys, besides worrying about what the person next to you is doing. <coughs> also, when it comes to humility, know who you aren't, right? Because James says that as well, Right? Who are you? 
Who are you to judge? Right? James is just calling it out. Who do you think you are, dude? If you want to be exalted by God, which is our aim, we must be humble, which means we must, in order for God to exalt us, we can't have exalted ourselves already. Do you see like the error in that person's thinking and, and what James's argument is? <clears throat> it reminds me of this movie uh, that me and Gianna used to watch. I'm not going to name it, but it, it's really funny. And there's, there's a person who lost their job and they're crying. I mean, they're just so upset. It, it's pretty funny. And, and they're with their friend and they yell at their friend, feel sorry for me. And the friend says, well, I want to. It's just that you feel so sorry for yourself already. And it, it's hilarious. And so, but you, you see that that's James's argument here, right? How can you say you want to be exalted by God? You are doing a great job of exalting yourself, right? You don't have to be exalted. You're God, right? You're going around being God. And so you see, you know, you see the error in that. And one more thing, and this isn't part of the text, but I think that, um, I think I'm going to go here anyway, and that's an exception to this, <clears throat> and that is you never want to protect an abuser. Do not protect an abuser. That is not in the text here. This is me adding this. And so, yes, yeah, show grace. You may know something horrible about the person next to you. It's not your place to, to make them miserable. And so if you know somebody who's abusing somebody else, if you are being abused yourself, the answer isn't to not, not tell somebody. Right? That, that's, don't be humble at that point. Don't be humble. You come tell an elder what's going on. Let us take care of it. There is some judgment that needs to take place there. We need to protect you. And so this is a case of where you don't want to be you know, humble. You want to communicate you are being abused. If I don't know, I don't know. And you shouldn't be being abused. <clears throat> and even if it's a verbal abuse, let me add that. Because quite frankly, as we've gone through the book of James, what is, what is James talking about? People who just, their mouths are a wreck. Right? They're just, uh, I forgot what the expression he used. It just lights everything on fire. just destroys everything. And so people can do that with their tongues, and it's very hurtful. So let's move on to verses uh, 4, uh, chapter 4, verses 13, 14, and 16. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town, spend a year there, and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. We'll come back to verse 15 in a moment. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. And again, we're talking about pride and arrogance here and not humility. And what is James talking about? Words. Words, right? You see this theme over and over. You who say, right? He's not even saying you who are. He's like, you who say. You like to say all these things. Here, here's the problem. These words are arrogant, prideful, and certainly not humble. And so the problem here is there are these merchants in the church who are just bragging. Just bragging. They're going to go here. I mean, I don't know what, the, what it would relate to today. Like, going, I'm going to go to Europe for a year. I'm going to make all kinds of money. 
Just let me tell you about how great I am, which is kind of an odd flex for someone in the church, right? It's an odd flex for somebody. I mean, imagine being at church and, and, you know, we're singing, it's like, oh yeah, God is great, God is great, but guys, let me tell you, I'm great. Let me tell you about what I'm going to do, right? And just goes off on on how great they are and how rich they are and are going to be. It's like, dude... If there's one place that you should be consciously aware of who you are and, and take your narcissism down a notch, like you'd think, church, <laughs> right? I mean, that's, I hope we're all on the same page, page with that. <clears throat> so not humble, that's to say not humble. <clears throat> and so what we find here, what I want to look at is three elements of humility that are absent in boasting, and the first is an understanding of brevity, as we find in verse 14, of the brevity of life. For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. You're here for a second and then you're gone, right? And so this boaster lack, lacks perspective on how brief his life really is. And James calls him out on it. You don't even know if you're going to have tomorrow, let alone a year or two, to go to Europe. You don't know. Like, what are you you even bragging about? Even if his labor was successful, and let's say he was telling the truth, he doesn't know how long he has to enjoy it. I mean, he might just be storing up for somebody else. And so it's not a good brag. It's better to have the heart of the psalmist in Psalm 90, 12, where the psalmist says, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Understanding the breadth of this life, guys, church, it, it is, this life is so brief. And understanding that brings wisdom, which the boaster is lacking. Like, life is so short, we should be really wise about how we use it. There are better ways to use it than just talking about ourselves. The aim of life isn't the amassing of stuff. And it is certainly not about bragging about all your stuff. And then even more so at church. Second, he doesn't understand the fragility of life. Again, verse 14, what is your life? What is your life? That's a philosophical, theological question. He's just taking it to the most beautiful, crazy point. Like, what is life? Like, what are you talking about? Like, we're in church talking about God and you're talking about stuff and places? Like, what is the meaning of life? For the boaster, you know, he's planned out his life and guess who's the hero of his life? Him, right? He's so great. He doesn't consider where his life came from or where it's going to go or who he's going to be accountable to. Church, what is your life? That's a great question. What is your life? Is your life a collection of stories about how you are the hero? Is it a big pile of stuff? Or is your life about helping others, loving others, your brothers and sisters? Is it about making Jesus the hero, which, quite frankly, gives you more joy than any pile of anything? What is your life? And lastly here, the worst element of this boast, of, co- of course, is it shows the lack of dependence on God. 
At no point does this boaster boast of, about anything in the Lord. Not even like, like, like a, a fake, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know every celebrity in Hollywood or any, um, but, <clears throat> you know, they get an award and it's like, oh, you know, thank God, thank, you know, any and everything. And so it's like, there's even like a token, thank you, Lord, God, but not for the boaster. Like, there's nothing. It's not even like a token fake thank you. Nothing about God. In which case, this person is living out a practical atheism. What does it matter that he's a Christian if he's not going to live his life, right, in reality of God? Now, I see this sometimes in the church, even, and almost always around money. Now, I'm going to push in a little bit. Speaking to the church in general, not to this church specifically, but, but in general, an example of practical atheism in the church today is the fact that parents do not encourage their children to go into ministry. And it is usually, almost always, a financial decision. They don't encourage their children to go min into ministry because there's no money to be made. And there isn't. There's no money to be made. Most pastors, aside from a few megachurch pastors, will be bivocational sooner rather than later. Almost every pastor I know is now bivocational. We don't have pastors. But how can we, church, who say we know God? God of the universe. And we say he's holy and he's good. How could we not suggest to our children, let alone push the idea that they can go into ministry? Do we believe God is good and will protect them and bless them? Do we believe that if that is never a conversation? Why don't we do it? Because it's not practical. It's not functional. There's no money to be made. It's hard. You are not liked. It is not cool. In fact, it is the only part of the book of James I think does not apply to us at all anymore. Because remember back in James where he's like, not so many should be, aspire to be teachers. That's not our problem. Nobody wants to be a teacher. So, <clears throat> But I do. I love it. <clears throat> and so the problem with that, though, is if we don't sell our children on the dream of ministry and walking with the Lord, which is a privilege and joy, the dream we are selling them is the dream of the boaster. Because that's the counter. Remember, everything is about balancing this out. And so by, by, by not encouraging our children into serving, whether it's in full-time ministry, bivocation, whatever it may be, we are telling them to be like the boaster. We are telling them to go here, go there, travel and buy a bunch of stuff. That's what we're telling them. And so practically speaking, what we're encouraging our children to do is become prodigal sons and daughters. If when we talk about their life and what they can do with their life, if we don't talk about serving God, we're telling them to go and just worship yourself. Do everything about your own glory, right? And then boast about it online, Right? Make a TikTok about it. Just talk about everywhere you go and all the stuff you have and how much smarter you are than everybody. 
such a person doesn't need to be exalted. They do a fine job of exalting themselves. According to a study in 2021, 1 to 2% of American churches close every year, which is four to 8,000 churches a year, generally speaking, that we know about, which means every week between 75 and 150 churches close. But this is what happens. This is the reality of when, as a church, we make plans that are based on money instead of the will of God. I've never heard a single parent in my life say, man, I hope my child's a missionary. Hope he sleeps in the dirt, preaches the gospel, gets some disease from some other country. I've never heard a child say, oh, I, I aspire to ministry. I don't, I don't care that you are not cool. I really want to be a pastor. And it breaks my heart because that falls on us. What have we shown our children? Why don't they want to be a pastor? Why do they want to be a rock star and a sports star? Why is that? And so we must consider the will of the Lord, even when we consider the will for our children. And I agree with the sentiment of David Platts, who says, we can become so consumed with the material realms that we can become blind to spiritual realities. And so we've looked at the, what's lacking um, humility-wise in boasting, the brevity, the fragility, dependence on God, which begs the question, of course, okay, what does humility look like? Like, okay, we got a good idea what not to do. Don't go to church and just start boasting about myself. So what does it look like? <clears throat> in verse 15, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And so what we find here is Lord willing humility. Lord willing humility. And surprise, again, it starts with words. Right? You see this theme here in James. Words. You ought to say. Say this. And so the application, this is, this is an oral application. Say this. If the Lord wills. If the Lord wills. And just to let you know, this is not... These aren't magical words. And so you can't say something that's complete nonsense and just say, if the Lord wills at the end of it and somehow it's holy. It doesn't work like that. It's like praying over your fast food for it to bless your body. Right? It's like, no, you survived it. God bless you. <clears throat> and so just saying... Lord willing or the Lord wills. It, it's a state of mind. It's a state of mind that that's, is thinking about God, that's depending on God. Now, when we think in terms of the Lord's will, it's not so much that we only commit our plans to the Lord. Like I said, it's not like, I'm going to do this, Lord willing. You know, but Lord willing, you know, it, again, it, it's a state of mind that says, Lord... What do you will? What do you will? Like, Lord willing. Like, it, it, that's the reason we want to say it. Like, Lord, this is what I want to do. Is this cool? Like, is this what you want me to do?
Now, the Apostle Paul <clears throat> was the absolute greatest example of this. And so you want, if you want to know what does it look like to live a Lord-willing life, in Acts 18, 21, but on taking leave of them, he said, and that's Paul, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail for Ephesus. And so Paul was always aware of two wills, right? And so you will see throughout all of Paul's writings, it, it's kind of, I mean, it's just the reality of what this looks like, where Paul would say to people, I'll be back, Lord willing. Um, I, I plan to come to you. My desire is to come to see you. And I'm going to do that, Lord willing. Right? So he's letting them know. It, it's, it's so wonderful. Paul's letting them know, if it was my decision, I would already be there with you guys. If it was my decision, I would absolutely come back to you. But he always says, it's if the Lord wills. And Paul will even mention times where he's like, I really wanted to do this. The Lord had other plans, though. He gave me a dream, a vision, spoke through some other guy. He was like, no, you're going to go do this. But quite frankly, I think a lot of us aren't aware of the Lord's will for us. It's not a very American concept that we would submit to anything but our own will. Are we aware that there's two wills going on or just our own because we can live like Paul lived. We could live in that reality of having a passion and a desire and yet submitting to the Lord. And I'm telling you, he doesn't regret any time he ever did that. It simply requires a work of our mouth. Right? It just requires us saying, Lord willing. It's just words. If the Lord wills or Lord willing. <clears throat> By saying this, it doesn't even matter. I believe it doesn't matter if you believe it 100%. It matters that we say it. Why does it matter? Just Why is it important that we just say it? Well, for one, it's a humility check. You know, if you say something, like it's automatically, did I, did I mean what I just said? It reminds ourselves, right? It reminds ourselves to take a step back, Right? Lord willing, okay, what am I doing? Okay, who am I? What is life? Am I dependent on God right now? When I say Lord willing, am I really Lord willing? And three, we can say these words as a prayer. Every time we do something and we say Lord willing, we, we, are, we are bringing God into it, you know? And so saying Lord willing, just the act of saying it is absolutely huge. We, even Jesus before the cross, before that ultimate humble moment, right? In Luke 22, uh, 42, Jesus says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Plans are not bad. As we go through this, especially through the book of James, you know, it's just like the same sense that talking is not bad. Is the tongue evil? Yes. Is talking bad? No. Talking bad is bad, right? Talking evil is bad. Plans are not bad. Plans are great. Right, we can go through Proverbs, right? How many Proverbs are about making a plan and doing it and being nice and being smart? Plans are a great thing. 
and the Lord wants to hear your plans. You ever think about that? As you talk about your desires with your friends and family, do you ever just go to God? Talk about your heart to God, what your plans are? It's quite humbling. But like parents, you know, who listen to their kids talk about their dreams, right? A lot of us as parents, grandparents, we listen to our kids talk about what they want to do. We hear about their plans, and yet sometimes we push back. And we give some alternatives, right? And some other options out of love. And so I think sometimes we don't share our plans with God because we're afraid that we know that God's going to say, yeah, it's not a good idea. And so, but we need to do that. We need to come to the Lord, speak our plans to him, bring him into our plans, but also make sure we are listening to his will. And I'm telling you, his will isn't for you to be the rock star of your own life. So if you've come to that conclusion, I would say that you're being your own God. <clears throat> now, James gives another positive example of living humbly. Um, and it's quite simple. Verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Pretty straightforward. Do the right thing application. Guys, that's your application today. Say, Lord willing, and just do the right thing. Amen? <laughs> so one, just one thing I want to point out about this verse, because I think it's pretty straightforward. We don't need to understand the Greek and the, the philosophy of it. It, just, it says do the right thing. But what it says is, is, is that you want to do it. It says whoever knows the right thing. And so I think that's the key there. The right thing isn't what you think it is. The right thing is what you know is the right thing to do, which has been James's point the whole time. 122, I know you have it all memorized. Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Knowing the word and doing the word is doing the right thing. Let me say that again. Knowing the word and doing the word is doing the right thing. We know the right thing to do, or we know how to find out what the right thing to do is. And so this morning, there's one more passage, one more point I want to look at. <clears throat> and that is James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. And it's not quite the same as the other two points. The other two points we looked at, um, there, there's very much, it's a hand slap. They're not doing the right thing. It's a hand slap, but it's also encouraging. It's also, okay, now that I got your attention, let me, let, me, let me tell you what to do and encourage you. This passage is a warning. It, it's, it's not the same tone at all. And so let, let's read this, starting in verse 1. James chapter 5, verse 1. Come now, you rich... Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who moved your, mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. 
You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. And so what we find here is the warning against the evil use of riches. And so once again, let me just throw this out. This is not James saying that riches are bad, not that money, possessions are bad. He's saying evil use of riches is bad. Evil use of riches is evil. Just keep that in mind. Something else to note about this passage, which is unique in James, not just some would say for his harshness. Some people think this is probably the harshest he is to anybody in these six verses, but the fact he's most likely not talking to Christians. I guess this is probably the one time in this letter where he's not talking to Christians. And I come to that conclusion like most people, I, I think the majority, um, because for one, he calls them you rich. Right? No matter what he calls anybody else at any point in the book, he calls them brothers, right? You brothers, you're adulterers, but they're still like the brotherly. Like he makes sure that he loves them before he introduces that harshness. So he just calls them rich. That's all he identifies them by. Also, he does not call them to repent. He does not provide them a path or an exit, right? This is him saying, this is what's going to happen. You rich this is what is going to happen. And so there's no opportunity that James presents to them. And so I don't believe he believes them to be Christians. He's just, he says, weep and howl. Like that's, that's his application to them. Weep and howl at what's going to happen to you. With that in mind, there's three purposes to this passage. One is a warning to the rich, like, like we just talked about. This is what's going to happen. Um, second, this passage serves to comfort the poor. Right, this, you know, think about it. We, were, we know this church is very poor, and there's people starving and in horrible clothes. <clears throat> and we know from this text we will see that they've been robbed. It's not even like they're, oh, they're not working. That's why they're like that. No, James is saying, no, they worked. They were robbed of their money. <clears throat> And so this is James, uh, James's way, this passage of comforting them and telling them they're not getting away with anything, right? It reminds me of Psalm 9 off the top of my head. Like, it, they're not getting away with anything. I am going to judge them. Like, I have heard your cries. Um, it says that he's heard, God's heard the cry of their money, which is kind of, kind of crazy to think about. And it also serves to warn the poor. Let's say they do get their wages. Let's say they can somehow find good, healthy work. Well, here's what not to do, poor. Don't act like the rich people are acting. So, yes, I'm going to judge them, but also if you get money, do not act like this. So what does it look like to use riches evilly? There's four evil uses of riches here mentioned that I'll just look at quickly. I don't think we need to obsess on how to do this. I hope you, like, don't take notes, like, yes, no. <clears throat> Say, no, that's what I want to see everybody writing. <clears throat> the first is hoarding, which we find in verse 3. You have laid up treasures. It is great to save and to plan. That is not what, what, what James is talking about. He says that their pile of money, like Scrooge McDuck, right, pile of money, is rotting. That's what he says. 
It's not being used. It's not in circulation. He says it's rotting. It's just a pile of rotting money. Well, at the same time, in the church, there's a pile of rotting believers, starving to death, in rotten clothes. And so that's his point, is like, you have a big pile of of, of rotting money and stuff that you care more about than a whole pile of rotting people. That is bad. That is hoarding. Second, in verse 4, we find fraud. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. And this breaks all kinds of laws that they definitely knew about. There's no ignorance here. Like these, there, There's no pity. Like there's so many verses, including Leviticus 19.13. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until morning. And so it was not uncommon for day workers to get their, their pay at the end of the day. And we know historically most of them lived hand to mouth. So if you didn't give me my money at the end of the day, like I'm not getting my jack-in-the-box or like nothing. Like I just worked all day, gave you all my energy in the sun. If you don't pay me, I have nothing. I, I can't afford a place to sleep that night. I don't have any food that day. But praise God, the Lord notices this. And he says, like, there's two cries that the Lord hears, that God hears. And the first just kind of, I think I'm going to talk about it next week during our, uh, as we talk about offering. But this idea that their wages cry out to God is something that I, I don't think I'd ever thought about before. The held back wages cry out to God. That is the money. That money itself is telling God, I, I belong to the wrong person right now. The money is crying out to God, God, this is wrong. Look who I'm with. I'm supposed to be with this person. Isn't that crazy? I mean, just think about that. You know, the application of that too, the way we spend money. The money is crying out to God, trying to get his attention. God, look what they're doing with me crazy. And of course, the abused cry out as well, and the Lord notices, which is the heart of this passage. Yes, the Lord heard you. No, they're not getting away with that. The Lord is not happy, hence the miseries that are coming from the throne against the evil rich. Self-indulgence, verse 5. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. Um, so basically, simply uh, gluttony, um, a waste of resources, kind of just wasted on yourself. Again, it goes back to James's point about the people who don't have clothes, and imagine somebody with just 500, you know, shirts. Well, there's somebody at church who doesn't have five, you know, and none of them are nice. So self-indulgence, <clears throat> and very seriously in verse six, murder. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. And what this means is that these wages are held back from this person. In, in one sense, in the lightest sense, is like, well, you have murdered this person by not allowing them to live. You've taken their living from them. They can no longer earn a living. And depending on how uh, poor and hungry they were, possibly even take their life. Like, literally... People are dying because you are not paying them. 
Again, we're talking evil use of riches, not riches, but hiring somebody to do a job and not paying them and watching them die. Evil use of riches. And so what are we to learn from the warnings to the rich? Well, as I just said, evil use of riches is bad, not riches. In fact, there are many rich saints in the Bible. You could probably think of some. Uh, Abraham, uh, Job, David, Lydia. Right? God does not condemn the fact they had a lot of money. A lot of the patriarchs, a lot of godly people had a lot of money. That is not the problem. Second, to take inventory over our use of money. Are we any of those things? Are we murderous, self-indulgent, hoarding, or frauding people? I mean, the example here, the application is don't be this person. So then the question to ask ourselves is, is there anything in the way we use money that is defrauding somebody? Am I willfully, knowingly hurting somebody how I use my money? You don't want to be that person. And third, in humility, remember that riches are a spiritual disadvantage. Riches are a spiritual disadvantage. That was James's point, remember, all the way back in chapter 1. Like, so much of this book is written to poor people. It's a disadvantage. Praise God for those of us, for those of you who have money. That's great. That's a great resource. But your heart is going to be pulled. Your money is not evil but it will pull your heart. It will challenge you more than not having money. And so you just, in humility, just remember that. Not a bad thing, but a, but a handicap, a disadvantage that you need to be aware of. You need to be aware of that. And so in closing today, <clears throat> we have seen that you know, we want to be humble before the Lord so that he can exalt us, which requires that we have the humility not to exalt ourselves. That's not what we want. And so humbly, we don't pass judgment because God is judge. Humbly, we make plans because it's God who's going to carry them to fruition. Humbly, we pay our workers and do well with money because God is the boss and he's also the HR and he actually listens to complaints and he does something about it. The path of the gospel is the path of humility. In humility, Jesus came from heaven to us. In humility, Jesus submitted to the will of the Father to die for our sins. In humility, he, he, he was stripped naked, beaten, made fun of, and brought low and died for us. But what happened? He was exalted. Right? That's the exaltation of Christ. In his humility, God exalted him and brought him back all the way to heaven, all the way up to his right side. Now, Jesus could have just came to earth and said, I am God, do what I say, or I'll turn you inside out. But the gospel, the path of the gospel is humility, which is why Jesus lived the way he did, because we want to be like Jesus. We want to be Christian. And the way to do that is by being humble. And so we must humble ourselves by repentance, by doing the right things, which is knowing the word and doing the word. Resist the devil, draw near to God, and he will exalt you. Let me pray. <clears throat>
Lord, you are good. I thank you that you love us enough. I think that James sometimes can be very tough. That he does slap a lot of hands, so to speak, Lord. But it is purely out of love. It is purely out of warning so that we would not have to be like those who need to weep and to howl and to cry out in misery over what's coming. But by your grace, by, by your conviction, you've given us a new heart, Lord, that wants to run to you and repent of evil, to run away from this world and those evil desires towards you. And so... Our hope for the future is also weeping. Our hope is falling into the arms of Christ at the end of this life and weeping for joy in your your arms, Lord, in your presence. And maybe we will howl as well, songs of praise. and, And we long for that day where we never have to go home from praising you. But that we will have spirits and bodies, Lord, that can just enjoy you just worship you continuously. But while we're here in Bakersfield and in this church, Lord, we submit to your will. Please use us, Lord. Please let there be a revival in Bakersfield. Not to the glory of Vanguard, but use us how you will to make much of Jesus. Which is what this city needs, Lord. It's what this world needs, Lord. And we ask these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.